I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe July 3rd, 2010. Model Rail Radio is the Internet's only live recorded radio show where we talk about model railroading. I remember the last show I didn't announce the talking about model railroading part, but there are other Internet radio shows, but we're the only one which is recorded live to talk about model railroading. And... Uh, well, I'd like to start by welcoming on the show's co-host. Hello, Chris Abbott. Hello, Tom. How are you? Very good. Very good. We've got our uh, our first uh, listener from New Zealand in the chat this evening, so it's going to be a very interesting show. And Ben from New Zealand, please feel free to uh, to chime in questions as well. And for folks listening in, you can both participate on the call and also participate in the chat by going to the Model Rail Radio website, modelrailradioalloneword.com, and that will give you the information about how to call in. And for folks in the Southern Hemisphere, in New Zealand and Australia, whilst we record on, um, for me, Saturday 4.30pm, uh, for Chris, Saturday 7.30pm, uh, for folks in Australia and New Zealand, it's um, around Sunday sometime. Uh, ben in New Zealand, if you can listen in, Please put the time that you're listening in currently in the chat, and we'll, we'll air that. So, Chris, my uh, my uh, couple of weeks update isn't particularly full of highlights, but yours, I understand that you've moved a mountain this week or something like that? Uh, well, I didn't move it yet. It kind of moved in on me, thanks to a uh, horrible bit of bad planning on my part. I ended up with about two tons of roughly clay material in the backyard before I was ready for it. And um, it wasn't exactly what I had planned on receiving, but uh, it's it's there and now I have to deal with it. So can unfortunately, you describe, can't... Can you describe what it is specifically? Is it like hard clay or is it soft clay or what, what kind of material is it? it it's, it's getting harder with the sun on it. Uh, it started out as, uh, I think it was an excavation from a swimming pool in, in one of the uh, suburbs in the area, and we had arranged for some uh, the transit of this material here, but we didn't realize it was going to be mostly clay. We thought we were going to get some topsoil, at least with it. Yes. And uh, now I'm going to have to mix it in with both compost and coarse sand in order to get it to, to some sort of consistency where we can grow things in it. Um, it was uh, Originally, it was to save us a bit of trouble with the uh, garden maintenance and also provide a little bit of a base for me to put the, uh, the garden railway on, maybe elevate one portion of it and do a little raised bed, but uh, you can't grow anything in straight clay, so I'm kind of stuck for the, for the moment. And uh, because it's, it's not here when it's outside of the time I had kind of planned to, to work on it, it's now this this giant mound in the backyard and it's quite the eyesore, um, which isn't the worst of the problems, but, uh, that kind of threw me off 
in terms of getting things done. And uh, I've also had some uh, ventilation and air conditioning failures in this wonderful house that I've purchased here. So I've been tackling those. Uh, slight casualties from uh, the excess water condensate, but uh, nothing critical at the moment. Uh, it's just time-consuming. It's uh, The best laid plans are apt to go astray and uh, certainly have in the last couple of weeks for me, but things are looking up, you know. How about yourself? Well, uh, yes, I, I don't really have anything model rail uh, related aside from, well, I've, I've gotten a couple of magazines. Uh, I got a railway modeler from the UK and, and model railroader uh, and went through them over the week. In fact, the railway modeler contained a brochure called uh, On the Rails Directory of Railway Attractions 2010 for the UK, which I think is either scanning or sending in physical copy to Matt Goodman as he heads out to the UK, because I think uh, quite phenomenal, actually. I mean, there are more than 300 separate uh, separate locations and events going on in the UK currently associated with model rail, um, which I thought was uh, certainly higher than I would have imagined. But in going through the magazines, I have a, a well, a smaller shelf layout, which is just above my head as I talk to you, um, in uh, British OO. However, uh, I'm kind of planning my next layout already and just thinking around the spaces around me. I had originally anticipated doing something in a slightly larger gauge, uh, but I still have a peel in M, and as far as I'm concerned, the benefits of relatively long trains, and also looking at uh, this issue of Model Railroader, there is a very long, thin layout uh, with kind of fiddle track and switching on the back uh, and a scene on the front. Uh, I don't even know, what would you what would you describe a, a layout that was kind of long and thin, but a loop around that would would stay away from a, I guess would probably be in the, in the middle of a room. There's a kind of fiddle track on the back and a layout on the front. What's the I see that quite often as a display loop, uh, especially at the British-style exhibitions. And uh, the operator sits back where the staging or uh, the hidden track is, but uh, it's quite frequently a dog bone shape or uh, just a, a simple extended oval. Um, which which month is it? Is it the July or the August, MR? And I seem to have the July issue here somewhere. I've got the August issue. So it's the August I've... issue that has... The July issue did have a... Um, an interesting uh, layout in it, though, but this August issue has... And putting the two together, Railway Modeler, which seems to be... Let me see which month I have of that one. June uh, 2010. They have a number of, uh, you know, six to eight-foot-long layouts, some even four-foot-long layouts, which echo exactly what you're saying, this kind of UK style of having relatively short switching layouts with, with powerful narrative and uh, amazing modelling. So... I don't know. I think um, the, the next few months are going to prove interesting. We have a lot of long... Well, we don't have a lot, but we have a couple of long uh, rooms which would suit themselves very well to the style of layout, although all of them are currently occupied by our cats too, so I'd probably need to consider that when designing. I don't really think designing a layout at kind of six-foot elevation... Well, maybe an in-scale layout at six-foot elevation would work, but I've got to work out how high they can jump and anticipate those kind of things. Um, they can jump higher than you calculate. Certainly. That's why I'm thinking six foot. I think that's yeah, probably... Uh, 
<laughs> been several times I've come home to find one sitting on top of the fridge yeah. uh, with no way to get to it. But uh, I think what we need to do, Tom, is we need to make up a, a layout that's like the, the license plate on a James Bond car where it actually uh, rotates and yeah. presents a new scene. You know, three or four of these things that we can turn into place all in one spot. But certainly, well, what uh, I was thinking, what I was thinking actually, particularly doing a very long thin layout, is it lends itself uh, very much to kind of sectional, a sectional layout in terms of bubbles, does, yes. particular areas, and then uh, putting them away in a kind of cat safe place. In terms of the fastest assembling sectional layout that you've ever seen, is there? There's no, I, I guess there's no real way of designing a sectional layout to be speedily put together uh, rather than issues of warping and just general layout. I mean, my, my sense for the sectional layout is you kind of bolt it together, you connect up the track, you connect up the wiring. But have you ever seen a quick fit sectional layout? Does such a thing exist? Uh, yes, it does. Um, it was designed, the one that I saw was designed by uh, the the head of the prop department at uh, a theater here in, uh, in Southern Ontario. And, uh, the guy is a, a brilliant carpenter, brilliant prop maker and, uh, scene designer. And what he did was to use at the end of each module section, he put French cleats in, which are basically, uh, tapered, uh, long wooden, uh, mating pieces that as you drive them together, they pull themselves uh, tighter together. And um, instead of having legs, four legs in every section, there was four legs on the starter section. And then every section that was applied to that had two legs on one end and French cleats on both ends. So you'd snap them together very quickly. And at the end of each track section was, um, instead of having uh, loose rails and uh, fitter joints, it was... Uh, uh, I believe it was soldered uh, PCB ties and solder rail right to the end, so there was Ooh. no mucking about. Ooh, so, very nice. And, and uh, you know, the the, uh, the two guys could uh, could put this. It was ended up being about fifty feet of track for the whole section. It was actually the Peterborough uh, Fremo module, which ended up having about fifty linear feet of track in it, including the yard, and uh, they could. Uh, put it up and take it down in half an hour Gosh. and be running. I mean, it was just amazingly well-made and it all packed into a, a, a cube that fit into a, a minivan. Right. And uh, it just, just amazingly well done. But, you know, when you have the skill set and you have the, the, uh, the precision to, to do something like that, you have the tools to make the precise cuts, it's, it's infinitely better than... Uh, mucking about with a saber saw and a and a hand square, you know. Um, now that said, it's not outside the reach of of the average person. If you have a a table saw or access to a table saw, you uh, you can certainly make all of the framing and uh, bench work for an identical module set to what uh, this fellow Pierre had put together. Um, his his opinion was it doesn't matter if it's light. Uh, that's in in the grand scheme of things, having it light is is irrelevant because if it doesn't go together reliably every time, it doesn't matter whether it's light or heavy. It's still gonna you know it's still gonna be crap uh, in terms of operational. And aside um, from the joins, what 
what was it made out of? Was it a standard kind of ladder layout with plyboard and plaster, or what was it made out of? Yeah, um, the, the frame sections were, were ladder style, ladder frame, and uh, he insisted on using uh, very good quality uh, uh, plywood for oh. every every section of the frame. And the top deck was uh, a plywood deck, and then the foam, uh, our, our favorite uh, extruded uh, poly foam on top, the pink or blue, depending on the region you're in. Um, and, I mean, absolutely beautiful when it was put together, uh, good operational characteristics. Um, yeah, okay, some of the sections were, were heavier than you would, you would like uh, them to be, but uh, his position was how many times are you going to move it. Every time you move it, if it's light, uh, typically light translates to flimsy. Yes. And if you're moving it frequently, then you're going to jar all of the important uh, datums, and eventually you'll have something that doesn't run worth worth a damn. And uh, he proved that it's uh, you know it's it can go together easily. I mean, two people of I guess in their 40s could quickly set it up and take it down. It wasn't a chore, um, and just well built well-designed, well-thought-out from the start to the finish. And because of the... It was all built on a slight curve. The more sections you added to it, the more stable it became. Uh, instead of being straight, it, it, it kind of supported itself, and there was a, a couple of wings coming out to uh, uh, industries on the side, and they added yet more stability to the entire design. There was a write-up in... I think it was model railroad or R no, it was RMC. There was a write-up in it about the uh, the Peterborough Fremo modular set. I'll try and remember if I can find a link to it. Uh, I'll uh, post it in the show notes. Very interesting. Very interesting. So this fellow you said was a was a theater prop designer. Yeah, yeah. He's the head of the uh, theater out in uh, St. Thomas. Gosh, uh, brilliant. You know. Great, he must have a lot guy. of experience building building theater sets and things that must collapse and go together. And wow, amazing skill set and absolutely ideal for this kind of task as well. One of the one of the stories that, that I I have associated with Pierre is that he had to make an entire set for the Pirates of Penzance, which fit through a standard thirty inch by six foot high man door. The theater it was being shown in didn't have a roll-up garage-style door, so everything had to break down and fit through like a standard household door. Oh. And I mean, you, if, you, if you're familiar with the play, <laughs> of course you have you know pirate ships and everything going on in that, and that's <laughs> <laughs> with people you know. on top. I mean, I think that's the thing about it. more than just a, a model train construction. This is designed to carry people weight as well. And yet, be yes. assemblable too. Yeah. So when when Pierre says this is a good way to do something, typically I listen because I really don't have anything to ar any basis to argue with him on. Well, that's fascinating. Once again, Chris, you've you've brought some some amazing insight into the show. So just just to repeat, this is wooden French cleat joins. Do the are the electrical contacts similarly easily joined, or are they just connect to wire in the in the Layout. 
for the cross uh, the cross sectional joints, anything that passed across the section, uh, we used. I helped out a bit with the electrical on this, just a bit. Um, the other guy did most of the work. Was using the Anderson power pole connectors, okay. which are currently being adopted by the Entrac people, and uh, and quite a few other modular groups. They really are uh, uh, superior to the Cinch Jones electrical connectors. They carry a higher current. They're easier, like lower force to insert and remove, and um, they're cheap as chips on a per contact basis. I think they're uh, they work out to about fifty cents a contact. So, good to yeah, know. They're, and they'll carry 30 amps each. So, uh, if you're if you're pushing more than 30 amps through these things, you've got a serious uh, a serious model railroad. Certainly, certainly. Well, the stuff in railway modeler, like I said, they're all small kind of sectional um, layouts anyway. And my anticipation is that I can start small with a with a loop around and. Uh, build as things develop, but also just in terms of space, whilst the shelf layout has been very useful, the ability to have uh, breakaway sections um, would be useful as well. So in terms of actual tools, a good quality table saw, is there anything else that you'd recommend for making good sectional pieces? Uh, well, depending on how you do your your uh, build-up, uh, Pierre's a, a real whiz with a... Uh, with an air-powered nailer, so you know it's actually it's you you've got to be careful because he'll be done something before you've had time to figure out what what it is he's actually doing. He'll have it all assembled with uh, glue blocks in the corners and all nailed together, clamped up square. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I find for myself, I tend to use uh, the uh, just wood screws and um, corner brackets uh, for uh, for making up. A square frame, anyway. It's um, it's simpler for for me. I don't have to have a compressor or any other special tools. So, uh, I, not to say I wouldn't love a compressor and all the special tools that go with it, because having some experience in the aircraft industry and using the uh, the air tools there, it is really convenient to just be able to swap out to uh, either a a cutting tool or a drilling tool or uh, a, a nibbler or any other. Uh, any other uh, cutting device that you need uh, virtually instantaneously. So, but um, no space for that yet. I've got a. <laughs> I'm I'm really literally right now because of some bad planning on my part in the last couple of weeks. I'm really inundated with uh, with things that are taking up valuable floor space and real estate here in the house. But that's life, you know. Certainly. Um, uh, I just wanted to mention, I think that the limiting factor on any of these shelf layouts or display layouts ends up being the, the return loop radius. Yes. So if you're going to make it a continuous run, um, you can quite, quite frequently uh, uh, run into trouble because you want to run passenger stock in, even in N-scale you want something on the neighborhood of a 12-inch radius yeah. as a minimum. For, yeah, for a good 14, size I would think, probably more than, more than 12, 14, maybe well, 16. Well, it depends on whether you've got body mount or truck mount couplers. If yeah. you've got body mount couplers, you'll want to go even higher. But yeah. I, I've seen guys have done displays with 12-inch uh, and even 10-inch 
radius, but you can't really have those as visible curves. Uh, it just it, it it breaks the illusion very quickly. Yes, and also uh, the anticipation you, of kind of pulling away at speed and then having to slow down for a, the tight curve is probably not not ideal. My thinking with regards to doing it in sectional um, pieces was that I could actually make the loop around track on a long section of track so I actually have some gap in the centre in order to get probably what the uh, 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 a slightly larger bit at the end to do a, a proper uh, decent radius loop around, all, all obviously off off scene. Uh, but yeah, I was thinking yeah. about that um, because my experiments with regards to N and radiuses of even 14 um, inches make me realize that, yeah, that's not something that you can really skimp on, particularly if you're doing any kind of, uh, yeah, any kind of uh, length of, of cars. And I mean, even even small oil cars, in terms of just having probably more than three or four, um, you want to have a, a relatively reasonable radius. I can imagine with passenger cars, probably considerably more again. But to be done in the future, I guess the, the beauty of these magazines is really they just uh, add to the possible uh, possible thinking with regards to what one can plan for uh, for the future. So, um, in terms of your garden layout, uh, you've got um, you've got all this earth that's turned up, and not even really earth clay, more appropriately. When I got um, emails from you earlier in the week, I assumed that um, it was solid. I don't even know what it's called. It's not like rock, but it's like granulated clay, large granules, probably, what, I don't know, smaller than an inch, but of that kind of area in diameter. But now you no, describe they're the size it that, of your head. <laughs> now you describe the size it of your head. Actual yeah. clay clods, um, then yeah. yes, it's something that's distinctly different. So is the plan to make... I mean, in terms... In terms of clay itself, it would be quite useful if you weren't planning on growing anything to create a kind of built-up clay section and then put, I guess, topsoil on top of it enough to get grass at least growing on it. What, what's your anticipation in terms of making the, the clay growable? Are you going to use any uh, any of the clay just as clay or are you going to have to break it all up? My My problem is that if I put too much clay in a certain area, I may end up uh, creating a, a block for the for the drainage, the water, and uh, the ground won't be able to absorb it and won't be able to pass through it. I'll end up with uh, with decks of wash, as it were, if I'm not careful in my planning. I can use some of it, probably a six inch layer, in one spot to uh, to bring up the level. But again, I have to watch that I don't make an impenetrable uh, sheet that the uh, the water can't pass through. I'd really like to to mix it with uh, the coarse sand and uh, the compost to, uh, I don't know how you would call it, almost like leavening it, uh, lightening it up um, to, uh, to allow it to be permeable and give, uh, give a passage for, for roots for, for, the, uh, for the plants. It really, it's just uh, it's bad planning on, on my part and uh, I wasn't thinking, and uh, somebody took me literally, and they <laughs> used the they used the term "clean fill" rather loosely. Um, yeah, it's 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 clean, but it's not actually useful unless I had a swimming pool size hole to fill up, and even then, that would cause its own uh, its own problems. 
So, but, uh, yeah, I need to do something about it. I've got holidays coming up, so I guess that's what I'm going to be doing. I'll be out back, uh, looking like I'm on a, a chain gang somewhere, uh, breaking rocks in the hot sun. Uh, uh not a good thing for a redhead to be doing really, but, uh, I suppose if I get the sunscreen on a quarter inch thick, I'll be all right. Yeah. Wear, wear a hazmat suit. That's probably the way to do it. <laughs> oh, that'll be nice and cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, Chris, I'm, I guess when I said that I, in terms of my model rail-related stuff, I hadn't done a lot. Um, I had sent out a few T-shirts, though, associated with model rail radio. Uh, and one in particular I sent to Dave Freire because he continues to promote the show uh, on his kit forums. And uh, I guess I guess one of these days he may even call in just to keep us on That'd our toes. That would be phones. great. It would be. That it would be, be absolutely great. fantastic um, because certainly I, I have a, a number of questions to ask Dave and I'm sure you have the same. And just in terms of his general level of knowledge, uh, it would be wonderful to have him on the show. But we have Andrew Chisholm on the line, I believe. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Tom. How are you? Very good. Very good. So if this is your first time on Model Rail Radio, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Yeah. No, I, uh, I've been listening quite a bit on the podcast, but haven't had a chance to, uh, to actually uh, call in yet. But, uh, yeah, my name is Andrew Chisholm. I uh, live south of Ottawa, Ontario. And uh, I've been modeling for about five years, and I model CN in Nova Scotia in 1978. And I, I, there's a great group of modelers in this area. We have a, a little local parent-child model railroad club called the Merrickful Model Railroad. We lost Andrew. Andrew mentions he's up in Ottawa. That's uh, that's our nation's capital. He's uh, part of the Merrickville group. Merrickville is uh, home to one of the one of the great hobby shops, train hobby shops in uh, in Ontario called Larkspur Line, and they do a tremendous business. Uh, mail order always have, but they have a terrific shop in a small shopping mall. You'd, you'd miss it if you didn't know it was there. You'd miss it, but it's worth a worth a drop in to see what they have. They quite frequently have uh, consignment items and uh, estate items from the local area, okay. and uh, you can find all manner of of things that are either out of production or uh, long since uh, forgotten by the mainstream in there, as well as uh, new items. So, uh, so is it a densely packed store? Is it kind of floor-to-ceiling, very thin aisles-style store, or what's it like? Um, the aisles would probably be thinner these days, only because I've put on weight. But, yeah, you can maneuver around fairly well, and uh, it's, uh, it's well-lit and, and well-looked after, and the staff are very helpful. Chris was just uh, talking about a particular store in your area that he's fond of. Chris, what's what's the name of the store again? Larkspur Line. Oh, Larkspur Line. Yeah, I go there quite often. Uh, in fact, is it still it, as good as it used to be? It's excellent. Yeah. No, the the, the owners they continue to uh, to keep a great selection in, and uh, he buys as many estates as he as as he can handle, and so there's often some great stuff that 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 shows up that's been on on uh, former layouts and he goes to he crosses we, we're only about a half an hour from the american border so he has a box in 
Ogdensburg, New York, and uh, get stuff shipped there. So every Friday he's he's down there bringing in new products. So it, it's a great store. Yeah, I uh, that's where most of my model railroad money ends up at Larkspur Line. They're 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 really good folks. And they've worked really hard. I mean, one of the there's been some interesting discussions about uh, um, hobby shops. I guess one of the big ones that um, in in Toronto has just moved uh, Credit Credit Valley. I know that's been talked about on the on the show, and some people were uh, have already been complaining about its location or they can't get there by bus. But my heavens, it's hard to even uh, keep a hobby shop open these days. They're they're closing. They're closing all over the place. And they, Larkspur Line works really really hard at. Uh, Keeping their door, doors open by selling on eBay and uh, you know doing a lot of mail order and stuff, and as, as a result, I've got a great hobby shop that's 20 minutes from home, and lots of folks can't say that anymore. No, uh, Credit Valley's actually moved to uh, a location that's closer to my house than it used to be, but I have not gotten to the new shop yet because of uh, the press of uh, work. I've sure. been working extra hours, but looking forward to getting down there and seeing how their new, it's supposed to be the size of a warehouse. So wow. Uh, wow. looking forward to going down there and, and uh, giving them a hard time about their choice of location. But <laughs> Well, they probably, yeah, being close to you is probably a, a good business decision for them. So. Well, it would be if they sold more S-scale stuff, but uh, oh, that's true. Yeah. so far that hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> you and Trevor Marshall maybe need to open a store. Oh dear. Uh yeah. Um I think so. <laughs> that would help <laughs> us uh, pare down our choices quite a bit in in what we have on hand to distract us from the business at uh at uh that we're supposed to be looking at. So <laughs> With Escale, I I ran into Escale a few years ago. I was down at uh, Steamtown in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and uh, in the hotel that's the former train station, they were having an Escale convention there. This is probably ten years ago now, and I I mean I at that point I wasn't really into the hobby other than just sort of collecting a few HO things. But I was amazed that in this you know big auditorium that was totally dedicated to Escale, how much how much stuff there really was out there. There's there's a a mixed bag of of availability. Some some items they made quite a few of, and some items were very limited production, depending on whether it was one of the major manufacturers or a, a cottage industry. And uh, if, if you're modeling uh, New York Central or the Pennsylvania or a couple of other the, the big lines, you can get ready to run, ready painted. Uh, very nicely detailed and uh, decent running rolling stock and engines. If you're modeling something uh, more esoteric, you're kind of out. You're kind of left out. And again, if you want to do the the high rail, the big wheels and uh, big couplers uh, versus you're doing scale again, there's a lot of there's an awful lot of high rail and American Flyer stuff out there that probably represents 80% of the S-scale market. So you tend to see an awful lot of the uh, the tin plate uh, uh, and collector stuff, which oh, okay. uh, which can be a lot of fun. There's guys that have done terrific layouts using uh, the uh, standard American Flyer equipment and uh, and the, the high rail stuff. And it's, it's great fun. It, it's reliable. It operates well. Uh, it's practically bulletproof. And... Uh, there's a there's a large number of people knowledgeable people that are that are doing things in S that uh, 
they came from the, the tin plate area. And, uh, unfortunately I chose the scale, uh, and, uh, chose a little bit obscure, uh, time frame and equipment. So it's more difficult to get things, but not, it hasn't been detrimental. It hasn't really, uh, stopped me from, from enjoying the hobby. Um, uh, it's, certainly hasn't stopped me from, from delving into half a dozen other unrelated things at the same time either. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I got to envy the HO guys because they can, they can go out and pick up just about anything they want. And even N scale, you can get so much equipment in N scale. Now it's, uh, it beggars the imagination. But, uh, then again, I got out of N scale be- partly because I was uh, impulse buying, anything that came out new and that wasn't a, a good way to get on with uh, the modeling from my perspective. So, but well, I, uh, I, I agree with you on that because I'm uh, one of the, one of the advantages when sort of a couple of my mentors in the hobby, Rob Peck and Michelle Boucher sort of were getting me started. And they said, when you pick an era and pick a prototype, then uh, that, that sort of limits your spending, right? I mean, when I, when Jason uh, Schron was bringing out the, the turbos, I mean, I would have loved to have a turbo, but they weren't running on branch lines in Nova Scotia. And uh, <laughs> so, so I'm $600 the richer. And yeah, but, and I guess, you know, with, with, with being in S scale, I mean, you're probably really where, where HO guys were, you know, 15, 20 years ago, particularly if you were modeling more, more obscure lines, you, you're probably a better hobbyer as a, as a result. I mean, I can buy everything ready to run and, you know, I, I didn't even know whale, wheels could be out of gauge until I discovered some out of the box. You know, a couple of years ago, and yeah, there's a, there's a sense in which being in the more in the smaller scales, you you actually can learn the, some of the skills quicker. Yeah, I'm. Um, it's funny you should mention the out of gauge uh, uh, item. I was uh, over at a friend's place the other day, and uh, one of the engines that he just had uh, rebuilt has one set of drivers that's wider than it should be and it's picking every point uh on the on the layout uh, every turnout point on the layout and it was very frustrating because uh it uh, it's a beautiful engine it runs really well on the straight track but as soon as it hits the important bits it, it becomes unusable and really it's only a matter of about seven or eight thousandths of an inch that's the problem in this case. How do you fix that? Ah, well, uh, depending on where your out of gauge condition exists, if it's on a set of, um, uh, tender wheels or pilot wheels, it's, it's quite, quite often easy to, to press in or, or pull out the wheel set, uh, just a little bit on the axle to, to give you where the proper gauge, uh, setting. If it's the driver's, uh, it can be more difficult, especially if uh, the drivers are inside the frame and you can't get at the uh, get at the wheels in order to to support them nicely while you're you're pressing them together or pulling them apart. You can do it. You can do it in a in a vise with soft jaws. I don't recommend it because there's just everything is hanging out, especially in a narrow gauge engine. Everything is overhanging the the area you need to access in order to to get the wheels. Uh, moved in or out. It's best done with uh, a device called the Puller, which is a Northwest Shortline uh, product that allows you to, to slide in behind the wheel and press, push against the back of the wheel while you're simultaneously pressing on the axle in order to, 
to move it out ever so slightly. Moving it in, you need to, to compress it. I built a small uh, arbor press uh, in shop class, uh, probably on the order. The smallest arbor press I'd seen before was about a quarter ton capacity. Mine's probably on the order of 50 pounds of pressure, maybe 100 pounds of pressure that can be applied. Uh, uses a rack and pinion, and uh, it gives you enough feel to be able to just squeeze in or uh, squeeze in a, a wheel set. The important thing is to make sure you're not pushing against one edge of a wheel mm-hmm. and, and skewing it, uh, bending it, and you think, oh, now I'm engaged, and now the thing goes down the track like a like an old jalopy yeah. uh, bicycle with the spokes too tight, right? I, I know a lot of people, you see them at shows and everything, they buy something new, and they, they take it out of the box, and they put it on the track, and they immediately run it. They haven't made any checks for whether the coupler height's right or the wheels are engaged. And then when it starts to have problems, they're, you know, they get upset with it. Out of the box, it's not any good. Um, it only takes a second to check the, the, the wheel gauge uh, using your NMRA gauge or a, a set of calipers. And uh, that can save you a lot of grief. Mass-produced items are not always made perfectly. They're made within a tolerance. And if it's the last one that's made out of a batch of several thousand, the machine might be a little sloppier that fits the, the wheels together than it was at the beginning. And it could be a little bit uh, out of gauge. Give it a check. It's worth it. And that way you know that everything on your layout is, is within spec and you can stop chasing gremlins uh, you know, those phantom failures are saying, well, sometimes it, it picks the points and comes off and sometimes it doesn't. Check, check that everything's within specification before you start. Eliminate that and then you can start looking for other uh, less obvious uh, flaws to fix your problems. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Having having standards before anything gets in your layout is is, is really important. Even, or, or, I mean, even when, when you're laying track, whatever it is you're doing to do the best job you possibly can. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm hardly alone in that. I have, I have Katie couplers on everything, right? I mean, I don't. There's all sorts of plastic ones out there that that, that look like KDs. But by having Katie couplers and checking the height before it goes on the layout and checking the wheel gauge, then you know when when you're running a train and somebody's over, it, it uh, the chances of it uh, going well are much higher. Well, the the chance of a failure on your layout is is inversely proportional to the number of guests you have. You know, (laughs) if you've got 12 guests, you can pretty much guarantee nothing's going to run. Yeah, that's right. When you're modeling in Nova Nova Scotia, 1978, are you uh, you're in HO? I'm assuming. And uh, have you had any trouble getting the uh, the motive power that you you want for the branch lines? No, uh, because the branch line I'm running ran from uh, Truro to Sydney, and uh, I'm my my main yard is in Stellarton. And back in '78, they were running all uh, MLW Elcos, the so Montreal Locomotive Work Elcos. And so yeah. I, I have um, three or four of the uh, RS18s that Proto 1000 did, uh, the Hobbycraft Canada version version of that. I've got some C424s, and I'm really looking forward to the to the uh, six axle uh, Stewarts that are are coming out in, in the fall. And you I, find and they I all have, run very well. They all run, yeah, yep. I've had, uh, yeah, they. The, the Proto 1000s have been, you know, a bit, uh, a bit um, finicky, but uh, they've actually, you know, worked pretty well for me. I have have the other two, the C424s or Atlas. They've been, 
they've been excellent. I've got an S12 as well that is an old Atlas that uh, Michelle Boucher repainted for me. Um, and I've got a little track mobile as well that, what, that just came out a little while ago that uh, sits at my Michelin plant. But yeah, I Perfect. haven't had any trouble getting, uh, getting motive power at all. Okay, and how big is your layout so far? How, how much have you taken up of the basement? <laughs> well, it's interesting. When I, I, I should actually, I, I know I, I have it. I, I really should measure it again. Um, I'm going to have to look look that up and get get back to you on my website because I have it written down. But when we when I was I was actually going to model Kingston, Ontario, where I grew up, and then uh, uh, my my wife grew up in Nova Scotia in Pictou County, Nova Scotia, and I found that she was far more willing to give me more real estate if I was modeling her uh, <laughs> her, her family cottage. So. So it's going through the wall into my office, and uh, it's it's much bigger than than it would have been. Yeah, so it, it's it's okay. a, it would, I would say it's a medium sized layout. It's it, it's built in a in a bunch of different sections, but uh, all uh, the actual measurements I I can never actually remember. But uh, I have a, I have a website inter, intercolonialrailway.com where I have all that stuff on, and I'll 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 look up some of it. But I I think I really do need to to remeasure it because I've done some modifications in the last year. Well, that's good. Those of us who married uh, ladies that uh, lived away from the railroad tracks, I guess we're kind of uh, shafted in that uh, that respect. <laughs> good idea, though. I'll have to remember that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it, it's amazing. I, I actually I have to scratch build the family cottage at some point, but uh, that was one of the promises I made when we we switched offices in the basement so that we so that it, that the railway could come through the wall. I'm I'm just looking at your site currently. It's an amazing site. Before you were cut off the call initially, you were talking about the club that you belong to. Could you give an oh, yeah. introduction to that as well? Sure. Yeah, the um, the Merrickville Model Railroad Club was a club that uh, Robert Peck and I started um, probably about five years ago, and um, it was uh, actually came came out of um, some parents who were um, just concerned that the scouting movement in Canada became co-ed, and so you had all, all girls and boys and the Cubs and the and the scouts. And uh, w- girls grow up sooner than boys, and, uh, and and tend to want to be overachievers. And the boys were getting quickly disinterested because the girls were winning all the prizes. So we really wanted to do something for some of these boys. So we created a uh, first a father-child model railroad club where the where the fathers would bring along their kids and work along and and build some models. And uh, it worked really well. And then some girls wanted to join the club, and well, so we we, we had a couple girls in it. But it's generally the boys that like trains. And it's it's gone really well. We've actually built a couple of layouts that are were raffled off at the uh, annual Ottawa train show called Rail Fair, and that gets raffled off for CHEO, which is our local children's hospital. We built uh, an American Flyer F scale four by eight, as well as a uh, uh, an, an HO one, and that was a way for all of us to to learn a little bit about how to how to do the basics of, ho- of hobbying. And what we discovered was that there's an awful lot of people that want to get into the hobby. And it's just they, fi- they go into the, the hobby store and maybe they pick up something or they pick up some cheap stuff somewhere and, and they just get discouraged and frustrated. And, uh, and, and the, the club has actually gotten, I would say, six or seven new layouts in the area as a result of uh, you know, some of the experienced people like, like Rob Peck, the president of the club, coming alongside and helping helping guys to get going as well as you know the the, the parent child aspect that's been a lot of fun so we've gone out we we do a setup at the local fair and um uh, rob's taken a layout to the to the beaver um the beavers which are the the, 
the junior cubs, I guess the youngest in the in the scout movement, has taken layout, layouts to them. It's it's been a really great, uh, great, great club. I mean, I'm I'm part of the big Ottawa Valley Associated Railroaders as well, but the Maryville Club is sort of our local club. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, in the introduction that you've given to your club, I've had a chance to pull up the uh, images from your site, in particular track plan of your layout. Now, I would call that an empire. I, I don't know. <laughs> the way well, I'm looking at it, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying not to drool as I talk on the phone. Can you just kind of run through a few of the towns on your layout and, and some of the backstory to it? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. It was it was built in three phases, and you know, in in retrospect, had I had I designed it the the way that I the way that it is now, I, I would have probably not designed it with with a duck under. But um, yeah, it, it, the the uh, staging is Truro and Sydney. So Truro is a major hub. It's called the hub hub of hub of Nova Scotia, and it was a it's been a, a major railway town for for many years. And then the other staging. At the other end um, is Sydney, Nova Scotia, which is basically the end of the line. And there's a little um, piece of track there that represents the Newfoundland ferry, where um, cars will cars going to Newfoundland would have gone on on the ferry, and actually at the other end would have actually have to be taken off their trucks and put on uh, on narrow gauge uh, narrow gauge trucks. And uh, in, in 1978, that was that was still happening. The Newfoundland railway no longer exists. The main part of the railroad is uh, is Pictou County in Stellarton, uh, Nova Scotia. That's where the main yard is, and there's lots of industries there. That's one of the other reasons to pick it. There's a Michelin plant. There's a paper mill there. There's a Tibbetts Paints. There's Trenton Works that makes uh, has made rail. It's just recently closed, but may has made railway cars for many years, um, as well as uh, as well as uh, cabooses. And then there's some uh, some smaller in- industries as well. Uh, yeah, but the, the, the main section, the main part of the of the, of the layout is, uh, is is Stellarton, New Glasgow, which are our two cities. And then there's a branch line going out to Picto uh, Picto Landing, and this is where I actually move away from reality. And uh, Picto Landing, actually, that line was pulled out in the late 40s, early 50s, and that's actually the line that would have gone past my wife's family cottage. And so I've kept the line in, and I'm. I'm and trying to uh, use it as as it would have been used in uh, in 1978. So in in the 1940s when it was being used, it was a coal pier basically, and there was uh, uh, coal was still being mined in Pictou County in uh, in in those days, and coal would have gone out. And I'm using the pier. I'm going to have a ship in there eventually, and I'm having rubber coming in for the Michelin plant and craft uh, pulp coming out from the Scotts from the Scott paper mill as well. There's also a coal-fired uh, power station, which there's uh, in Nova Scotia. So I'm bringing coal from uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia, down to the uh, to the coal-fired power station on my layout. Is it is it Trenton? Is that yeah? The... Yeah, there's actually four cities that are or, or towns that are all mer- merge into one another. Um, and so there's Trenton, Nova Scotia. There's Trenton, New Glasgow. And, and Stellarton, as well as Westville. I don't actually model Westville. Westville, I mean, I, there's just not enough space space to put it in. But Trenton is is where most of the industry was. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting track in Trenton. I'm just looking at the the track plan in particular. So, how long has it taken you to build such a layout? Well, I've been at it for about five years, and it, it, it's interesting. I go at it in in sort of spits and spurts, and uh, the, I. Um, 
uh, you know, when I when I knew there was a friend visiting, going to be visiting from England a year ago, I really wanted to get my new staging area in in uh, Truro and, and Sydney. So I worked really hard that summer to to get it in, and then I get away from it for a while. Life gets busy with work, and uh, and then I, I get back into it again. And right now, I've been sort of starting finally to do some of the scenic work when I've got my track work in such a a way that I'm I'm really happy with it, and that's been kind of fun to be to be learning learning that part of it. But I've really been in the hobby for just for about five years, and and there's lots of work left on this layout to keep me in the hobby for a long time. Certainly, certainly. I mean, just in terms of in terms of uh, space alone, and you seem to have picked some really interesting areas to model a number of industries. In terms of, I mean, you you talked initially about picking an area around where your wife grew up um, in order to get the the permission, management permission, uh, to do <laughs> such a such a layout. But in terms of the, uh, I mean, we talk quite a bit in terms of, uh, you know, whether you line up cards, whether you use a kind of sprinter agile-based methodology in creating a layout. You've talked about the ebbs and the flows a little bit, but in terms of the actual planning, did you sit down and think initially, I mean, I can see that the main section um, looks like it was, it was planned initially, but did you start with the initial main section and then plan the offshoots, or did you always have a, a relative vision of what the layout was going to look like? Yeah, I, when I, the, certainly the main section, which is uh, where where where, St- where Stelton is. Yeah, that was that was the the original plan, as well as going through the wall in in two places to rep, to where the paper mill is and the Picto Landing Branch Line. That was that was part of the original plan, and it was planned out on. Uh, on paper, and then um, a friend of mine in Ottawa, Steve Adamson, is really good with a, a software program called Extract CAD, which is I think it's still available free. And uh, and he would yep. come and kind of um, and you know do it out for us to see if it, it would work with all the measurements and things. Uh, I used a um, uh, the 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 yard was it was a was a oh a yard out of. A, I mean, it's not actually the Stellarton yard. The Stellarton yard would be too big to fit on a layout. So I, I, I sort of took portions of it and have taken a yard that was done by uh, from from one of the model railroad books. And then, then the, then the last the last section actually was definitely uh, an add-on. I was frustrated with the staging that I had. I just I had I, I I wanted to run longer trains, and the staging was just was just too small. And so the 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 whole third phase, which is where Truro and Sydney are, and there's uh, some small small industries along the way uh, that was that was just to make the railroad more enjoyable because operations is what i really love about about the hobby i mean there's still lots of things i love but operations are what got me hooked it sort of went from 2d to 3d for me when i when i got into operations and and, and having that larger area to be able to stage trains to have trains going and coming from has just made the layout for me much more enjoyable yes it, it looks i mean the area that you you described in terms of taking it from a, a model rail book looks like a John Armstrong. Uh, it's a John Armstrong. That's exactly what it's from. Yeah, certainly, yeah. very very much signature. But in terms of the, um, I, I guess in terms of time management, because we've talked about that quite a bit. Do you get a sense? I mean, I I do agile development, and in software, you always get the sense, the anticipation of things coming in the future, so you don't get frustrated with the now. Is this really what you've done with this layout as well, that you kind of anticipate that you'll be doing other sections in the future, so current frustrations are kind of merged into the, the future development? Can you describe the kind of day-to-day, week-to-week of uh, creating a layout such as this? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no question that that you know I I, st- I started with with a plan and uh, um, and then as as I started you know r- running trains and trying to operate things you know I would change tracks. There's an extra ladder in the uh, that I put into the uh, the Stellarton yard, for instance, just to make operations a a, a, a little easier. Um, and yeah, so I I think yeah that's start out with a plan and even when even when you get the track down and if, even if it looks perfect on paper sometimes you discover i've just discovered things that just didn't work quite quite right and uh and so you just you know i i've felt quite free to to, to move some things around or or add things add things to to, to make them work so it's it's it's, it's a sort of a mixture of planning and and also getting you know getting tracked down and i really wanted to get tracked down because i I wanted desperately to be able to run trains, and I know some of the one of the guys that was helping me. He wanted to get this bridge built or that bridge built, and all these things. And and I and, and I remember just saying one day, you know what? I'm going to get I'm going to get bored if I can't have trains running. So so that I, so I really worked hard to you know keep trying to keep up the quality, like not just slapping down rail, but getting getting the rail in um, so that I could uh, uh, run some trains, and then from there change things as. Uh, as I as I discovered that things things could be better, and I still haven't built those bridges yet that uh, my friend wanted me to build five years ago. <laughs> so it looks like a it looks like a, a good operating layout. What kind of operation do you do on the layout? Well, I've I've only sort of operated uh, with myself and one other person, uh, and I that, that's only that I, I've been talking with my operating friends that I operate with in in in, in Quebec to. Having having them over sometime, but I use I use uh, car cards and uh, and waybills using uh, I use a, a a card system called a ship well ship it car cards that's uh, that's created my waybills and the other things I sort of create in a little graphics a cheap graphics program called Printmaster and that's I found that to to work really well for getting you know have, having it be somewhat prototypical and. Having the cars cars move around the layout, but I really I really need to before I do I I've seen it a couple like the my my Michelin plant and my paper plant I I I've seen it, but I really want to get the guys over here and operate it a few times before I actually you know make the the final commitment to where everything is because it may work really well for me but I may discover things when when I have a few more people here. And it's flex track on cork by the looks of things. That's correct. Yeah, 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 and that's worked well. I the uh, yeah, it's it's Code 83 uh, Atlas Flex Track. Um, I I've um, played around a little bit with the Code 83 Pico Flex Track, but I actually found the Atlas worked uh, worked much better. Although the Pico, it's almost all Pico turnouts, and connecting Pico turnouts to uh, Atlas Flex Track is 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 not as easy as it might seem. You're always have, you're always having to file down the the Flex Track to get the the rail joiners to fit, which uh, it's just the some of the, uh, the whatever the bottom part of the rail is called is is a slightly different, uh, slightly different width. What did you find uh, superior uh, from the Atlas flex track perspective over the Pico flex? Was it just the rigidity of the uh, the ties? Was it too difficult to form the Pico into curves? Exactly, exa- exactly. Yeah, the the, the uh, Atlas flex track I just found was uh, yeah. Flexed, flexed better. Yeah, the the the, the pico seemed too rigid, and also when you were cutting it with the rail snippers with the pico, I found that the, the ties were much more uh, much more easily fell off. 
uh, where with the Atlas they uh, they they seemed to, to stay on. So I bought a. I, I only ever had about seven pieces of the Pico track, and I thought I would use it to connect um, two of the Pico uh, turnouts that were really close together in a yard, and even that didn't seem to work very well for me. But it, it, may, it may have reflected my skill <laughs> level more than. Uh, I mean, I know lots of people swear by the Pico track, but for me, the Atlas track is worked really well and it's substantially cheaper too right did you have any difficulty when you were putting the bench work together with the uh, metal studs no that the the, the steel bench work is unbelievably fast that main section the first section on my layout we got that thing up in six hours uh, i mean it's yeah. just i i mean the, the issue is you know you watch yourself because you can cut yourself on it and i you know i i eventually did you know cut myself on it but i i i Done took that. a on, on, on when you when you're cutting that steel, you know it's very it, it yeah. gets very very sharp. But it it goes together so quickly, and it is so solid. I mean, you can you can sit on it, uh, on 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 the the stuff, and it's it's it it you know it, it secures to the wall really easily. One of the things interesting that I'm discovering with it now that I've ballasted some sections is that it it is fairly noisy, um, and that's something that I hadn't really considered relative relative to wood but uh compared well, you're, to well there's there's no mass to it uh like there is with a piece of two by four of the same same dimension so when you stretch that uh, or glue down the uh the foam to the top of it uh you're making like the top of a guitar or the top of a violin so any vibration gets amplified yeah um, that was my only my only fault with uh with the product uh, when we were doing some work on some modules, but uh, yeah, you're right. It goes together so quickly. You, you're, you've got a couple of tin snips, and uh, you go at it, and then uh, put the self-tapping screws in at the, at the joints. It's it's amazing how quickly it goes up. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And for you know, and ultimately, if we move someday, I mean, I'm in I'm in the sort of career that we tend to move around from time to time. So, yeah, I'll, you know, if we move someday, I, I'm. If, it, it, it'll actually come come apart fairly easily too, and and you can move it in big sections. Where wood sometimes it's not as easy to not as easy to do that with. Although I'm saying I don't know that for a fact because I haven't actually taken it apart. But that's the theory. So folks listening in, can you describe a little bit about the steel benchwork versus the wood benchwork, Andrew? That's right. Yeah. So steel steel studs and and steel C channel. Which are just, I mean, two two different things that go into you know steel uh, manufacturing. It, from a cost perspective, it's about the same as wood, except that there's no wastage. I mean, obviously, when you're when you're cutting wood, you're, you're, the reason why your layout room is full of sawdust is because you're always losing some things. With with steel, I mean, there's there's you, you can use almost every piece of it, and uh, and you use you use a square, and you get things, uh, you know, you get things square and. The main advantage to it is, is that is that it's it's rock solid. You don't get the warpage that just people complain about in the winter and summer sometimes of their their layout shrinking and expanding, and uh, you don't, you don't get that with steel because it doesn't uh, it 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 doesn't it doesn't do that. It's uh, it's steel. And so this I'm is not, similar to traditional wood benchwork, except you're just replacing it with steel. You're replacing it with a particular kind of steel. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not. It's basically just steel studs that you would like steel two by fours and and something called c channel that go that fits inside it that you buy at a you can buy it at a home depot or or arona i happen to buy it at a local i mean a, a, a local shop here that got yeah and i uh, i know uh my friend robert peck who's building a 
a CN layout in the 1950s on Vancouver Island, he's using a smaller steel, um, uh, smaller steel studs for for his layout. And uh, the main adva- the main advantage is is just that it goes together quickly. And uh, yeah, and it and it's yeah, it, it's it's really solid. But the the issue of sound is something that. I hadn't really thought about it. it's not it's not a big issue, but it's just it's just something I noticed when when we got the ballasting down. It's certainly every little vibration it picks up. You get a little rumble while the engines are going by. Yeah, what you know these these are these were old Alcos, so I suppose we should really expect some of that. <laughs> uh, I've come across a picture of your workspace as well, your workbench. Uh, we had we were talking about workbenches earlier uh, in the show, uh, earlier episode, and. Uh, You've got, of course, the self-healing cutting mat and the the uh, drawer system to hold all your raw material and everything and detail parts. Is there uh, is there anything that you can't live without on that workbench? Any tool that you find uh, is uh, indispensable? Man, that's a that's a good question. Um, certainly, I mean, <laughs> there's a little. I don't know if it's on the picture there. There's a little piece of wood that I. I drilled some holes out to hold my paint bottles in, and that's that's at, or glue bottles because I spilt glue and paint, and uh, that was something I saw on, an, on another guy's workbench. Having something to, uh, and I take that with me if I'm paint, painting track on a layout or something to to keep my uh, my paint bottles upright so they don't end up uh, getting getting all getting all over everything. Um, Good idea. Yeah, there's, there's different tools I tried. I tried. There was something called a. Uh, uh, a rusty rails painter tool that I that I that didn't didn't work at all for me. Um, so there's there's different there's sort of different tools there that I've. What was the I, premise of the rusty rails tool? Was it to go well, along the, the edge? That was going to paint the side of the to paint the side of the rails. So uh, yeah, yeah um, before before you ballast because because the rail I mean the, the flex track is just too shiny. So the rusty rails tool had a had a little. Uh, it's a it's basically a paint bottle with a little roller on the end of it, and I could never get it to work for me. And I've, I've also tried the the um, uh, there's little paint sticks you can buy that are um, made by one of the main paint the people that Flowquill I think makes them. Flowquill. Yeah, yeah. They, and they've worked they've worked pretty well for me. Although sometimes just going along with it with a paintbrush is just it's just the easiest thing, and you get the best quality that way. That way, it seems. Well, Certainly, you'll get something with some variety and uh, and uh, organic feel to it, rather than uh, using a, a the roller or a template for it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Less yeah. less even. Yeah. Well, it's great. It's great. Thanks for uh, pointing out your website uh, for us to peruse here. We'll put that in the show notes for everyone else to to have a look at too. Right, right. The other, the, the last, the other tool that I think the sprue cutters that 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 I, um, I I don't know where they are on my on my workbench right now because it's not as tidy as it is in the picture. But the, having a good set of sprue cutters is just absolutely essential for building or repairing any kind of a model if you're working with any kind of styrene or plastic. Uh, like the precision scale ones. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah they are good. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks for sharing the info with us, man. My pleasure. My pleasure. Wonderful talking with you, Andrew. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Great stuff. Yeah, amazing layout. In fact, I was looking at uh, at uh, Michelle's layout, the the fellow he referenced as well, and clearly he's got a a very good mentor. Uh, the phenomenal I'm Michel layout. Michel, yes. Yes. Have yes. you seen uh, his layout in, in the rail? 
Uh, no, I haven't been there in person, uh, but I've seen photos of it, and I know people that have operated on it. And uh, yeah, he's a top quality modeler. So one of these days I'll get up there. There's supposed to be a there's talk of a road trip to go around to to meet mutual uh, mutual friends in the hobby, and uh, I think that would be a a good place to start is up in the Ottawa area. There's a lot of a lot of uh, top quality modelers up there. But uh, we've had a lot of uh, uh, traffic on the discussion list recently, too. Uh, backdrop painting, track laying, and, and whatnot. Oh, and I do have to, to make a correction. I know I made a correction on the discussion list, but uh, if for people that don't read that, that heard last, the last show where I talked about filing brass, I don't know how I got it into my head about the brass, using the files on the brass first and then not being able to use them on anything else. If you file, take a new file and file steel or any hard material and then try to use it on the brass, it doesn't cut properly. It doesn't cut the brass properly. It kind of skates across it. Uh, so if you're going to have, if you're going to do a lot of brass work, uh, either with a sheet, uh, sheet stock or, or bar stock from K&S, um, then keep a couple of files aside that you don't use on anything else except brass, and they'll be fine uh, for... Uh, for just that, but then as soon as you use them on a hard material, you'll you'll take away the the uh, the razor sharp points of the fresh uh, fresh file. So before I forgot, I thought I'd put that in in case somebody heard me last time and thought I was off my chum. So, so is really the answer is to maintain different files for different purposes. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you end up with something like uh, you're working with uh, plastic. And you're trying to use uh, an older file on it. It it doesn't it doesn't cut as well. It needs um, uh, it needs to have uh, the really the sharpest teeth. For so for brass and plastic, you don't want to use an old file. It just won't cut properly. It'll kind of mush or skate over it, and you don't want that. You want something that you can control nicely. Um, you never. It's hard to make a mistake with a sharp tool. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but a sharp tool goes where you point it, and dull tools go where they want. So uh, that's where you end up with accidents and injuries is using dull knives and uh, dull cutting tools because right. you're applying more force than you need to to do the job. So, And Ben quite rightly points out, uh, Ben from New Zealand pointing out, that yes, you can use a, a piece of brass uh, rod to uh, to clean up a file that's got uh, uh, material gummed up in the in the teeth uh, just by going across it using the pushing the uh, gummed up material out of the file with the brass brass rod. So um, there was some good content about traveling with the hobby, taking a portable toolkit with you. I think Matt uh, Matt Goodman's trying to do that when he's in the UK and uh, getting some work done over there. And uh, Duncan McCree showed us some of the backdrops he's working on, which frankly looked great to me. I don't know, he, he seemed to think he was putting too much detail into the backdrop, but I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a good balance uh, considering the, uh, the relative closeness of the track to the backdrop. 
And also the way Duncan models, basically, the model will always be much more detailed than than the backdrop. And even even with a good backdrop, you know his modelling skills will basically draw the eye. So I think these things are all relative, particularly where Duncan is concerned. I remember there was a there was some comments uh, on some of the websites about um, photo backdrops being too realistic. They take your eye away completely from the from the the models, and you're you're looking at the photo. Um, and I'm not sure about that. I think you mentioned Tom. There was a there was a backdrop that was painted like a watercolor. Uh, I think we saw it on one of the sites that uh, that one of our listeners had uh, had sent to us, and the the backdrop was done almost in an impressionistic style, as a as a watercolor scene. It wasn't uh, it wasn't sharp or well defined at all, but it, it really set off the uh, the diorama portion of it that we were looking at very nice. I thought certainly, and I mean I think there's a depth of focus effect as well. That basically, if your yeah. focus is joined to the front. The backdrop, and you know, really, I think it's it's a taste and preference issue. I mean, uh, I, I know other other folks. I mean, Dave Freire, for example, has always had um, you know, critical points with regards to too much detail in the backdrop. But my feeling is that you know, to each their own. I mean, it's it's everyone's layout uh, fundamentally, and if people want photorealistic behinds. You know, I think that's their their choice. But I do agree that there is you can get amazing depth of field effects by using watercolor effects and, and things like that. But in terms of travelling with the hobby, I wanted to return to that topic because uh, certainly I know a number of our listeners, even a number of the participants on on prior shows, uh, travel frequently. I'm going to be doing my first travel and business for living memory. Actually, I haven't I haven't travelled. Probably a decade ago, I did a lot of travel, but I haven't been traveling recently. And the thing that I'm uh, looking forward to uh, when I get to the Bay Area is actually visiting old hobby shops uh, as well. I think, uh, actually, for folks, I was going to do this as part of the the T-shirts. Our our show has kind of gone in all different directions, Chris. But I was going to mention um, that I'm going to be in the San Francisco Bay Area from July 12th to 15th. And if there are any listeners in the area please get in contact with me, Tom, at modelrailradio.com, but also Neil Salan, uh, who's a listener from Australia, from Ballarat, Victoria, actually. And funnily enough, also an old family friend of ours, and the things that the reach out of the podcast is that um, you do occasionally find people that you've actually met. But Neil is going to be in St. Louis, Missouri, in the first week of August. And for folks who are listening in in St. Louis, uh, if you have a layout or if you want to meet Uh, An Australian model railroad enthusiast, Uh, Neil, will be in town the first week of August. So also get in contact with me, Tom, at modelrailradio.com. Because I think the the travelling with the toolkit, I don't know, I'm so uh, so concerned with regards to TSA restrictions and these kind of things and maybe moving as a foreign national. The the idea of having a, a small kit containing files and knives and these kind of things um, I don't know. I, I guess if you travel by road, it's probably easier than travelling by air, in particular international travel. Well, obviously, Matt is going to be importing a lot of the stuff that he purchases in the UK. But um, what was your sense with regards to the, the travelling toolkit, Chris? Have you travelled and done the hobby uh, on the road, so to speak? I, I tried to uh, once on one trip, and uh, it didn't it didn't work out well, simply because... I had so many 
so many places to be while I was away on the trip that I, I was never at the hotel. I was basically uh, running around the whole time. If it wasn't out for a meal with uh, with friends and, and acquaintances, it was uh, out to a site, uh, whether it was a, a railway heritage site or a museum or something else. It really, the, the hotel was a, a bit of a blur. You're just coming back and falling face first on the bed and, and, <laughs> and getting up and starting it all over again. It was really, I, you know, they had a, Apparently it had a television in it, but I never saw it. Mm. So, um, you know, it was, it was really the, um, it, it didn't, it didn't suit me because it wasn't a business trip. The last time it was a pleasure trip. And of course those are filled with all the things you want to get done. Uh, you know, you're going away for, uh, ostensibly for rest and recreation. You come back more tired than you left because you're trying to fit so much into the, the brief span of time. Um, that said, uh, I remember years ago, uh, going up to the cottage with plastic models and, uh, you know, the recommendation was bring something to work on while it rains, because of course, when it rains, you're, you've got three or four or five or six or seven people trapped in a small, a small space. And there's nothing to do except, uh, play moldy old board games and uh, try and figure out, you know, which local television station you can get with the antenna stuck out the window. Um, so I, I had this small set of uh, tools for some plastic models. Um, I think they were automobile models at the time was probably my interest. Now, this is going back you know, 30 years. Uh, not a lot of sophisticated tools, an X-Acto knife, uh, a really bad file that didn't really cut much of anything. And, uh, you know, the typical testers, uh, model glue and a few paints and brushes and whatnot. But, uh, these days, yeah, when Matt said he was going away and taking files and cutters and, and, uh, measuring tools and everything, I, I was kind of worried that someone somewhere would, would uh, x-ray it and say, Hey, this guy's up to no good. <laughs> that would be my concern possible. as well. Yes. And and you don't want to take your your favorite tools with you, of course, if you're doing this, mm. uh, because of the risk. But then, if you don't have your your best tools with you, then you're you're not going to do your best work. And I think it's it's kind of a compromise. Um, I what I do tend to do if I'm traveling somewhere now is to take the periodicals with me or take the <laughs> books with me that I want to brush up on or, or catch up on. And uh, uh, I've got a couple of uh, MRs from, from recent months, uh, due to just, they were dropped on my lap and said, here, you know, take a look at these. And I've actually surprised because I'm seeing, uh, I saw a couple of really good things in the June and July model railroaders. And I had stopped reading it a couple of years ago because I wasn't seeing anything that was, uh, you know, valuable or useful. Uh, even for beginners, I thought that some of the things they were doing were too simplified or too Certainly. too truncated. I guess they didn't tell enough of a story to get the beginner into it. Yes. Um, but uh, I was looking again at one of my my pounds of magazines in the back, and I saw a comment again from someone uh, that MR model railroader was not representative of the hobby and people <laughs> in the hobby. Yes. Uh, it, it's sort of the um, uh, the pedestal. Uh, which 
you know, certain, certain individuals are elevated upon every month. Yeah. And, uh, I, I'm wondering if that's, if that's actually a bad thing. Hmm. I'm wondering well, if, I think if this that... is the perennial question, isn't it? And what interests me, and certainly I, I agree with you, I had anticipated actually cancelling my subscription, but as you say, the past couple of issues, whilst this issue, the layout wasn't particularly good, I did get other things from it. And my suspicion also is that they may actually be listening to the kind of feedback from forums and potentially even podcasts without maybe explicitly acknowledging this in terms of the redesign, because I think they seem to be a lot more connected with the kind of folk that we talk to and also potentially what's going on in, in forums as well as podcasts without um, you know, necessarily making that the case. And t- talking about recent correspondence or at least recent sign-ups, the McGurk family, Marty and Matthew McGurk, speaking of uh, Model Railroader, is, is Marty still connected with Model Railroader at all? Yeah, I think so. So they signed up to our uh, our Facebook group uh, in the past couple of weeks, and, and shout-outs to both of them. I have a couple of Marty's books. So I do get the sense that they're starting to listen to the kind of feedback that uh, podcasts such as ourselves are providing them. And my hope is that the magazine improves uh, in the directions that it has been. I mean, certainly some of my recent correspondence with Dave Freire was about trains.com and what we use trains.com for. And uh, I use trains.com kind of semi-frequently, mainly for the track plans. I don't watch a lot of the videos uh, on the site. But the track plan archive is actually fascinating. Have you used the track plan archive on trains.com? I've been through the site uh, a couple of times, uh, but as I'm not an MR subscriber, Ah, there seems to be a lot of things I can't get to. There's a... A significant percentage of the information is behind the paywall. Certainly, and yeah. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not sure whether that's a bad thing or not. Uh, yeah. Our, our new example, Model Railroad Hobbyist, of course, has. I mean, everything is uh, free to the subscriber. The, the, uh, the, the quantity of information that comes out every two months is is actually overwhelming, and uh, there's a number of uh, uh, videos and other things that are that are on the main site, and there are things that are time limited. If you don't, um, if you don't go and download it or look at it uh, during the first two or three weeks of the time that the the new issue is released, you don't get to get it for free. I think there's a uh, going to be a collection offered at some point in time, or there's some other features, but uh, it could also be a bandwidth issue that Joe's running into. There's so many people downloading stuff that he can't have it. Uh, um, simply streaming forever because it's just going to become a an overload for him in terms of uh, bandwidth costs. I'm not sure. I'm just speculating on that. But, uh, you know, uh, Kalmbach is doing something a little different with Trains.com, um, limiting the majority of the content to their subscribers. I know uh, RMC is doing, has revamped their entire website and now has uh, quite a few interesting things on it, as well as uh, a Facebook presence where they they are encouraging people to participate in this online discussion. Pretty good. Uh, I, I'm wondering what what's going to happen five or ten years down the road. What the face of the hobby is going to look like from the publication standpoint? Hmm. Uh, is it going to be the same as it is now? Is it going to be markedly different? Or 
Uh, are we going to see new publications coming out, uh, whether in electronic format or uh, in uh, in print, or is it going to, to dwindle a little bit more and become? Uh, are the existing electronic publications going to expand? Is that I guess that's where I'm looking at. Certainly. But, well, I mean, the thing that struck me, and this is probably why I like the more recent issues model railroad subconsciously, is there's far less advertising. Uh, in terms of just unfocused ads for the sake of ads. There were actually a few ads in there which I took note from, um, which is very rare for me, uh, summing through Model Railroad. So I don't know if they're improving. I I personally think that there is still a market for magazines, and there'll be a market, as in paper magazines, and there'll be a market mm. into the future. I The way I use magazines is very different, and my anticipation of owning a handheld device that will enable me to read books and these kind of things. Maybe I'm just a bibliophile and addicted to paper anyway, but I do like the aspect of, as I do read in bed and these kind of things, well, I might have a handheld device in the future to do that. But what it requires is the quality of the information and the format of the information, as you've described in terms of these kind of strange divergent beginner's articles where no beginner could really be that beginning, basically, <laughs> these kind of things, mm. will be tuned. And I think what we're doing here with, with Modern Rail Radio, what the other podcasts are doing, perhaps uh, perhaps some or all of the Model Rail forums, is providing a lot of good information for the editors of Model Railroad and the other publications. In fact, I haven't looked at um, RMC uh, for a couple of years, uh, and I really need to look at that publication again because obviously the um, the patriarch passed away what a year a year uh, and a half yes. ago. Yeah, so yeah. My anticipation through reading that magazine while you know while he was still alive was that he had uh, even even though he wasn't explicitly in control of the publication, he was very implicitly um, maintaining the publication to a standard that had you know has existed for a large portion of it. So my I've always enjoyed RMC, yeah. It's yeah. been a good magazine. The Scratch Builders Corner Certainly. and uh, even the Collector's Corner where they talk about the older, uh, the origins of the, the hobby and the tin plate and various yeah. things that came up in, in the early days. It's always fascinating, but yeah. I'm wondering, as you say, how relevant some of the stuff is. Um, you know, is it is it real? Can anybody really be that much of a beginner? Can anybody... I'm looking at stuff here. Build your own fast clock, digital fast clock. Scratch build, scratch build your own Mikado in in 32 easy steps. Yeah. You know, um, is anybody that advanced? Is anybody that much of a beginner? But you've got to, you can't cover all the bases every month. I don't think it's possible to. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, on a, as a side note for devices. I actually held an iPad yesterday evening. Oh. I actually had it in my hot little hands, and I, <laughs> I looked at a few newspapers, and I looked at a few magazines, uh-huh. and it's extremely intuitive to use. Certainly. No, uh, I, I love the interface, but um, okay. I'm yet to actually touch one. The people I know that own them uh, keep them close to their chests, particularly knowing me and uh, yeah, my, my abilities to interact <laughs> with these kind of things. So, no, I haven't, I haven't yet actually touched one. I've anticipated going to an Apple store and particularly the new uh, iPhone 4, but really we, we, we digress into the tech uh, too frequently with regards to this podcast. Well, it's, it's part of the hobby. It's part of what's happening to the hobby. With, I agree uh, with entirely. Yeah, we're I talking agree. about 
wireless throttles on the on the discussion list, and there's a lot of good uh, content coming out of that. Um, I'd love to see I'd love to see uh, a couple of people I know who have the technical ability and the technical uh, grasp of the situation to to take and run with the idea. Um, but I'm you know it's asking a lot. Uh, it's already hard enough to find hobby time for oneself. Uh, to ask someone to go and undertake a uh, a big task like developing uh, a wireless interface that uh, you know uh, it would just be it would be great if they could but I, I think we need to to develop cloning technology first and then we can make more of ourselves to to get these things done but yeah well I uh, I mean I think open source I mean certainly my own experiences of that a fellow in the UK released a vast improvement and a series of really interesting things associated with my open source development in the past three weeks. And my feeling is that uh, every time I get tired with open source, things like that happen. And I think the JMRI kind of legacy is going to be potentially folks who are uh, who are uh, Ben's age, and this is Ben in New England versus Ben in New Zealand, will will probably develop uh, interfaces which will make this stuff a lot easier to use. I mean, my experience with regards to programming for the iPhone and the iPad is that really you can kind of drag and drop a lot of this stuff together. The only issue is then getting it approved and actually um, for sale on the iTunes store specifically. Uh, this could be yeah. something where uh, Droid and these kind of interfaces with more open source uh, methodology from kind of end to end might be able to provide something and certainly uh, for the model rail enthusiasts that may be a killer app but returning to this uh, notion of travelling as I'm anticipating to, to travel myself in a couple of weeks, I used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area and have fond memories of some of the uh, hobby stores uh, both in the malls and also um, well in the strip malls as well, they're kind of exposed uh, mall areas too and there are, um, I, I put six of the ones that I knew into Google, and four of them maintain. So I'm anticipating a, a day of going between these various stores, and I will be packing light on my way to the Bay Area. So I agree with you. I think uh, whilst it would be wonderful to take a, a, a moving tool chest, um, maybe I'm slightly more... Uh, Flight is the wrong term. Um, so maybe I'm slightly more concerned than most in terms of uh, meeting... Uh, meeting various TSA agents and these kind of things uh, as, a, as a migrant to this country. Uh, but my sense is probably, uh, for my own travel, uh, it will be, as you say, potentially buying a small number of kits, but probably mainly going for paper articles, uh, magazines, books, these kind of things. The second-hand bookstores in the Bay Area are phenomenal, um, and I was hoping to get to Berkeley uh, while I'm there because there are a number of good second-hand bookstores in Berkeley that I'm sure probably have... Uh, sections where I could discover some model rail related stuff. I guess we're getting to the part of the show uh, where we uh, attempt to stump you, Chris. Oh dear. I but, thought you'd forgot about it. Well, you I was, hoping you I, I was very impressed with the uh, <laughs> the diversionary topics. Before I before I begin with that, I just wanted to I announced Dave Freire, um who who received a T-shirt for his uh, wonderful wonderful publicity stuff associated with the forums. Um, like I said the first time he did this, you know, when you've got Dave Freire 
singing your praises. You know you're you're doing something right. I mean, that was quite overwhelming. And I know this time you two were uh, were hit by uh, Dave's generosity in terms of the way that he's been mentioning the show. Well, he's now got a Model Rail Radio T-shirt as well uh, for his mentioning. And um, in no particular order, well, obviously Matt Goodman uh, was sent a T-shirt from his last... In fact, two stumps in a row. I had offered to send him a couple, uh, but he said, no, I only needed to send him one. So shout out to Matt, um, wherever he is. He may be in the UK already. I, I need to check his dates. Also, um, in terms of feedback on iTunes, um, a, a listener who uses the handle A-V-L-I-S-K uh, on iTunes, if you can contact me, and give me your postal details and your T-shirt size. I will get you a Model Rail Radio T-shirt. Uh, this listener raised concerns with regards to the audio. I think probably in the first or second show, I mentioned that Model Rail Radio is recorded on TalkShoe. Um, Chris, your audio seems to come through fine. My audio ebbs and flows. I typically record uh, the hands-free uh, telephone unit, which enables me to move around hungry cats uh, or a wife and various other things. Um, easily, but I'm thinking probably I've been podcasting for five years now, and I probably need some kind of semi semi professional equipment. I've avoided up until now, so if the audio quality is bad for me, apologies. Uh, it's the nature of the recording equipment and also talk shoe. Uh, but A V L I S K, please get in contact, uh, t shirt size and postal address, and I'll get you a model rail radio t shirt. In addition, for feedback on iTunes, uh, David Gustafsson, I've sent a Model Rail Radio T-shirt. His was, I think, one of the first to arrive. And also uh, Jason Reese from the uh, Model Rail Radio mailing list. In fact, for folks listening in who'd like to participate in the mailing list, go to modelrailradio.com, all one word, click the list link and sign up to the mailing list. Jason um, accidentally sent his stump into the mailing list, um, which I thought I was... I anticipated that this may actually happen, uh, but Jason was such a good sport, I, I sent him a T-shirt, and I think he also left a review on iTunes. So uh, thanks to Jason as well. And also I mentioned Neil Salan, who's going to be in St. Louis, Missouri. Neil left a review on the Australian version of iTunes. And when if you leave a review on iTunes, um, and it's not the US version of iTunes, I'm probably not going to see it in my general scans uh, so if you are leaving a review on iTunes, even the American version of iTunes, drop me an email and just let me know and you'll go into the list for the T-shirts. But like I say, six T-shirts, four of which have already been sent out uh, already, and most of those have come through iTunes feedback, so it's the easiest way to get model rail radio-related swag. I mentioning again, Neil Salon is going to be in St. Louis, Missouri in the first week of August. But we now get to the stump. And I was going to start by saying there was various discussion because these, these T-shirts obviously aren't free plus postage. Um, a number of people raised concerns that I was possibly going to go broke actually sending out these T-shirts and that we may need to tighten the, um, the stump crisp format. And also there was some discussion last show about you providing a question for the listeners. Have you thought any more on that, Chris? I have. I came up with, with three questions. Uh, which I thought were incredibly clever and difficult, and I was able to find the answers to them all within five minutes on Google. So uh, I had to throw those out. Okay. Um, and and I'm, I thought about it. I said, well, I can come up with a really obscure,
obscure question that nobody would ever know the answer to, but then that wouldn't be any any fun either. So I'm I'm gonna have to. Well, it certainly wouldn't be fair to anyone. Yes. You know, like you know what uh, what what gauge railroad did my uncle build? You know, yes. that's not really fair. Um, but I thought of, of things, even the DCC question, which was uh, related to the uh, uh, the Busby bit in Digitrax, and it was literally two seconds. It was the first or second link on Google when it came up. So uh, that didn't that didn't pan out. Um, I have to change the way I'm thinking about this this uh, stump the audience question uh, without forcing them all to go on long trips to the National Archives to find information. Um, but it's it's still worth looking into. I uh, I will come up with a couple of questions. I hope to uh, for the good listenership to uh, to think on and have a a week or two to to come up with an answer and have a shot at it. Yes, I think uh, in general the format works well. I was just feeling uh, feeling particularly positive since the last show and sent out probably, well, the right number of T-shirts as far as everyone who received T-shirts, but certainly perhaps the, uh, the wrong number of T-shirts for my wife and various other concerned parties on the mailing list, uh, particularly when my wife's uh, alternator blew on Thursday. Uh, but moving on from that, we do have a couple of... Uh, a couple of questions. I um, I promised to read Ron's question out. Uh, it is a sufficiently hard question. And we also have one from Steve in Chicago. Uh, following the theme from the last show associated with it being not specifically model rail related, but a pretty funny one from Steve. So as I had promised to read out Ron's question first, I, I believe he is actually currently measuring himself for a T-shirt as he is listening in. So, so this is a prototype versus model question. Uh, what's wrong, prototype versus model, with my 70 eras Buckman HO scale F9A locomotive in Canadian Pacific multi-mark action red livery? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you to, to say that question again. Okay. What's wrong with my Marklin? So it's it's prototype versus model, which okay. What's wrong with my seventies era Barkman HO scale F nine A locomotive and Canadian Pacific Multimark Action Red Livery? seventies uh, era Bachman F nine in Canadian Pacific. Uh, let, me, let me let me be. It's it's F9A. F9A. It's probably too short and doesn't have the steam generator in it. That's that's basically the correct answer. <laughs> I need a ding. I need a gong sound. I need a a, a, a ringing well, sound he's here. Asleep. For I can make him. I can make him meow if you want that. As the. <laughs> Although well, I'll probably have both the SPCA and the RSPCA on to me if I do that. So let's let's just leave the uh, the cat meowing sound effect and say, unfortunately, Ron, you've you've underestimated Chris. I'm I'm, I'm dramatically disappointed there, as I'm sure Ron is as well. But I mean, uh, that uh, that was a common problem with a lot of the earlier models uh, that were offered if they if they released a, a, an engine 
or a, or a piece of rolling stock. Uh, this was from any manufacturer, um, and they wanted to be able to sell more of them. They would just add a new uh, a new paint scheme to the to the release, but uh, each individual railroad would have their own um, their own special requirements, especially up here in the north. We had uh, one of the common things was the bell would often be re- relocated from under the frame to a high point on the nose, uh, simply because they'd get filled with snow mm-hmm. when you were uh, when you were uh, driving around, and uh, when you went to ring the bell, it'd be frozen solid. So mm-hmm. we moved them to a high point, and the steam generators for heat in the passenger cars, uh, again, uh, a lot of our lines required that. So um, let's say it was an inspired guess as to, the, to the, um, what, what could possibly be wrong. Yes. Well, the, the correct answer, which you basically covered, is the Canadian Pacific never owned any EMD F9s. They owned GMD FP9As, which are roughly four feet longer to accommodate the steam generators for heating the passenger trains, which is it's basically what you said. So I think uh, you have full points there. And unfortunately, Ron, you're just going to have to... Uh, I, I'm really impressed, Chris. I, I looked at that and I thought, this, I'm, I'm going to be sending a T-shirt to Canada, no question on this one. Well, uh, Steve from Chicago uh, asks a, a similar style question from his, show, uh, from his question a couple of weeks ago. And the question is... What is the name of the alcoholic drink which is named after the position of a railroad signal? Uh, the alcoholic drink named after the position... Oh, highball. Yes. I thought that was far too easy as well. I would have said well, slippery nipple, but highball works. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen that railroad signal. Uh <laughs> Maybe it's only in Vegas. Anyway, moving on. Uh, it's possible, but it stays in Vegas. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, but, yeah. uh, okay. Highball, okay. Certainly. And, uh, I mean, I remember this from, uh, I can't remember what, what the layout was, but they built one of these highball, lowball signals for a particular crossing. And highball means all is clear and lowball means stop, basically. Uh, yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, it was uh, I, I couldn't figure out the first time I I somebody this is a number of years ago said well I'll give him the highball and I'm looking at the semaphore of course and it's got the blade in the appropriate position for for it to go ahead and I'm thinking well what's that got to do with the blade signal and it it isn't it's not the blade or the the light it's when it was literally a ball on a rope uh, lifted into the air on a on a set of pulleys and. Uh, um, that you know, you have to delve into the history of railroads before you realize how they did things in the early days and what the terminology that's carried on today, where it has no no longer any visual reference that you'd ever see a high ball somewhere. Certainly, uh, and it models cool very well as well. You can use uh, fishing weights or beads or a wide variety of things to do high ball, low ball signals. It looks great, yeah. And actually, I think. Uh, well, Trevor could tell you this, but there's there was a place where there were two two signals right next to one another, and they had to be used in combination. So you had mm-hmm. basically four different positions of the two balls. You could have both up, both down, one up, one down. Uh, um, and I, again, you know, you would never never think of something like that until you see it in real life. Yes, yes. 
Well, uh, I guess I guess you've you've saved my bank balance. Uh, <laughs> this show because you no beat up the last show. <laughs> <laughs> well, last last show was a no hitter. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, your betting average we, is, is raised once again. We we talked about the possibility it could be absolutely anything. I mean, the one question about which manufacturer produced a Norfolk and Western Woodside caboose, uh, I you know, I I could I could guess and maybe hit it, but again, there have been so many cottage manufacturers over the years uh, that that kind of struggled along and had maybe four or five products in their in their entire line. It's it's a, a pretty wide uh, expanse uh, for people out there uh, in, who've been in the hobby for 30, 40, 50 years and have the, the memory retention and they know all the little intimate details. I really envy these people, their ability to, to pluck the information seemingly out of thin air and, and, and reiterate it to us. Um, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I may eventually become one of those people, but, uh, I think I'm a bit of bit too much of a dilettante to to get uh, to get uh, to that stage, but uh, I'll tell you the questions are always a lot of fun, and I always learn something. I learn something from every aspect of doing this show with you, Tom. Uh, whether it's things on the discussion list, uh, ideas that people have, and and sharing their photos and uh, their processes for doing their models and and scenery. Uh, the questions that people submit, and just the the general conversation that we find ourselves wandering uh, from topic to topic during a show. It's it's always always interesting and always a lot of fun for me. Certainly, and I think the amazing thing is just um, I've talked to other podcasters about this. You put out a podcast on any topic, and the caliber of the people that you find through putting out a podcast, because people will come to to these topics. I mean, iTunes in particular, and we're not necessarily giving positive reviews to all Apple products, but it's an amazing way of getting people who have an interest in model railroading the world over. We have been in New Zealand in the chat uh, just together. And, I mean, it's a, to have the privilege to talk to you on a, a regular basis, Chris, and as a, fundamentally a beginner in the hobby, having someone of your skill set and people like Steve from Chicago, Matt Goodman, Andrew Chisholm, to say his layout is a medium-sized layout. Did you actually see the track plan of Andrew Chisholm's layout? Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's. Uh, well, we've got big basements in Canada. That could be a medium-sized layout uh, by by generous definition. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. I mean, you could say it's only medium-sized. Hey, it's only one deck, right? It's not double deck. That would be a large layout in that space. True. But then I've I've seen, I've I've had the 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 chance to operate on layouts that literally have uh, 15 crew members or 17 crew members plus a dispatcher with radio headsets and radio throttles and double deck and uh, um, extra, I mean, they've, they've even installed extra uh, ventilation and air conditioning units in just for the basement because it gets so hot yes. uh, with everybody in there. And it's, it's truly amazing to, to be part of a, an operating session on something like this, it's it's overwhelming. You really feel at the end of it, at least I do, that you've done uh, a day's work um, because you're trying to to immerse yourself in the in the activity. And uh, when the illusion is right, 
you are immersed in the activity. You're actually uh, running a train somewhere uh, across the, the prairies or through the mountains, and uh, it draws you in. But then, you know, I've been on railroads, uh, operated on model railroads where there's two people. Uh, and that's as much fun in, in many ways. It's, it's different because uh, you, you find typically that there's more uh, attention to detail in the scene and uh, a higher level of fidelity in, on the models because it tends to be a larger scale. But uh, it's just as much fun, but for different reasons. Certainly. And, uh, well, Andrew's it, in the a, chat, and he's telling a story of a fellow he knew who uh, dug out under his... Uh, dug out under his garage in order to expand his layout. I have a friend in Australia called Les Whaley as well. Um, if you see my YouTube, which is my surname, Barbele, um, there's a there's video of his layout, and he did exactly the same thing. He dug under his house uh, in order to build a layout and, and proceeded to dig because he wanted more stuff in the layout. And it's quite impressive. I mean, it's it's a proper it's a proper room. You don't get the sense that you're going down into a burrow. Although it's by well, Australian standards, it's very cool, which is also a nice thing. Here, unfortunately, in Las Vegas, there's a kind of well harder than traditional rock um, that I guess Las Vegas used to be part of a, a seabed. So there's kind yes. of a harder than rock coral like substance which is under most of the houses, which uh, unfortunately doesn't allow us to uh, dig uh, very deep. They have to use blasting technology in order to put in swimming pools here. So really, no basements here. Uh, but yeah, the ability to have basements or to create basements clearly allows for uh, these empire-style layouts. I wish I could remember. I just recently, in the last two or three weeks, I saw a website where a guy was talking about the new home he was building. He was a model railroader, and uh, from the start, it was always intended that the area under the garage would be open uh, for the layout. And he had installed these pre-stressed concrete panels. That was the floor of the garage, uh, so that it would be free span. There would be no posts or anything underneath it. Gosh. And, yeah, the, the garage was... Uh, 20 by 20 or something with two cars, two and a half cars. So another 600 square feet of layout basically <laughs> underneath it. Um, and I mean, here's the technology that's coming along from home construction where this sort of thing is possible without breaking the bank. You're not asking for something unusual. It's, it's merely the matter of uh, uh, getting some, some pre-made uh, floor panels installed that are rated at the appropriate load. And uh, to me, that's, that's as amazing as anything else that's going on these days is, uh, is what, what you can do if you plan ahead um, and, and think about it before, you're, before you commit. Uh, I'd love to be in a position to design a, a railroad with a house over it, but so far that hasn't happened. Um, perhaps I'm not buying the right lottery tickets, but uh, it's... Uh, it's certainly amazing to see what people do when they put their minds to it. That's part of part of what uh, keeps me going is the, the the constant sense of surprise I'm getting still um, when I, I look up look up a new approach to something. I say, "Holy crap! I never thought of that. That's amazing." Yeah, and you know, so.
from New Zealand. He's been feeding us uh, various Wikipedia links. Rumutaka Incline, the Rumutaka Incline, does that sound right to you, Chris? That he's building yeah. in New Zealand, which is a three-mile-long uh, railway uh, that leads up to... Well, let me see. So it's quite a steep grade by the looks of things. Ben says, well done. Uh, and he's modelling it with another... Another connection piece. Have you been following the discussion in the chat, Chris? I've seen a, a couple of items, and I took a look at the webpage and saw the E66 articulated locomotive, which immediately captured my attention. I, I, I love those sort of unusual steam engines. Um, and uh, I, I haven't gone into great detail on this. It's uh, it's a steep incline, but uh, and three foot to cape gauge, so three foot six inches. That's terrific. A little bit of unusual there. Are there any commercial models available for the components on this railway? Or is this is this everything from scratch, Ben? You were saying there's some fairly gorgeous locos. KA942. Scratch built, he's saying. We oh, have well. Andrew Chisholm back on the call. Hello, Andrew. Hi, I'm, I'm back on. Yeah, the incline is quite steep. But it looks like, as you say, they have very specialized uh, specialized locos for taking these kind of things. Yeah, it's it's not a rack system. I thought it was a rack originally, but it's actually uh, it's actually a, a, a variation on a cable incline with uh, wheels bearing against a, a center uh, a center rail to provide braking or traction, which is amazing. It's always. It, it, the ingenuity of people getting around with railways kind of throws me off. Um, if you're having to build these things from scratch, Ben, that's uh, pretty impressive. And what's what scale are you doing? Uh, 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 let's see, NZ42, I guess, would be the, the scale. Is that 1 to 64, Ben? There really are some, some tremendous narrow-gauge locomotives and, and railways around the world, some of which are still in operation. And uh, I think... Uh, I think the narrow gauge stuff gets preserved uh, in a proportion higher than the standard gauge stuff simply because there's, um, I, I, I hesitate to say sense of ownership. The locals in the areas where these quaint little trains run seem to uh, adopt the the prototypes and, and treat them as something uh, that defines their their area or their era, and they want to see them them kept in good condition for for the future. Uh, you know, people running uh, mainline freight trains through through the backyard, not so much uh, an interest in preserving a lot of those. Uh, you know, it seems to be thousands and thousands of a particular type of locomotive or car, and nobody really cares until they're all gone. Um, but where there might be one locomotive or maybe half a dozen pieces of rolling stock in a, in a remote area, it seems like a disproportionate amount of that equipment gets, gets saved and uh, travels forward through time. Yeah, it's, I remember uh, when I was uh, in Newfoundland a few years ago, and uh, the Newfoundland Railway was narrow gauge, and it got uh, ripped up for, there was some kind of a deal with widening the highway or something. The roads to rails deal. That's right. The exactly, government... Exactly. Uh, $800 million, uh, the Canadian government offered $800 million to the province of Newfoundland 
in exchange for their railway to uh, upgrade the the highway system and then the the railway overnight virtually uh was uh discontinued and torn up terrible tragedy really mm. it, re- it really is and, and i mean and the number of books that have been written on that i mean and 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 the, the people of newfoundland their their attachment and love for that railway and there was this little section of it called the Trinity Loop, which is in Trinity, Newfoundland. It was actually on a branch line, and it was kind of unique. And it did the sort of loop to get down to sea level that uh, you know that, that we get some of the big railways going through the mountains. But it was all done outside, like it was all done without tunneling. It was all it was called the Trinity Loop. And I remember uh, going there one time, and it was it was pouring rain, and they, they, they offered to take it was turning into a little tourist railroad. I remember going around in the pouring rain on this sort of piece of uh, Newfoundland history called, called the Trinity Loop, and it's now gone. I guess the guys who are running it ran out of money. But but all over Newfoundland, yeah. there's little, little railway museums and, and things where they preserve these really unique, you know, mo- locomotives and, and rolling stock that they had. Well, it was 108 years of their existence. Was uh, It was the major employer for the entire island for a number of years, and... Uh, uh, the Trinity Loop, uh, which was one of the best, uh, the best areas that, that had uh, some equipment and and even real tracks still left in place. Again, it, yeah, as you said, it disintegrated into uh, disuse because they just ran out of money to to support it. And uh, it's a shame the the railway itself was the only narrow gauge railway in North America that ran sleeper and diner service from their endpoint to endpoint. It was a 26 hour run from St. John's to Porta Basque, uh, where it picked up the ferry to go across to uh, Sydney, North Sydney, uh, Nova Scotia. Um, and it had the nickname the Newfie Bullet, too, which is kind of humorous in that it took 26 hours to get across the island. But. Yeah, the slowest crack passenger train in the world. Uh, <laughs> rumored, The name was rumored to be given to the Newfie Railway by American servicemen during World War II. Uh, it was uh, in World War II. Newfoundland was still a uh, British colony; it was not part of Canada. And uh, there was an arrangement for a number of the American uh, military bases to actually uh, uh, f- uh, build on Newfoundland as a jumping-off point to go overseas to uh, to Europe. And uh, the, at the time of the the war, there were millions of passengers taken across this narrow gauge railway in every piece of equipment they could find. They dug up uh, passenger cars from the 1890s and pressed them into service just to have more, more uh, ability to move, uh, to move uh, uh, people and the material. And there were, it was a, again, it was a narrow gauge railway. So it was not a, a class one railroad by any stretch of the imagination in terms of the roadbed, and there were washouts and problems. There were uh, there was a washout I recall that halted a fuel train, and they ended up uh, bridging the gap with pipes to transfer the fuel into a train on the other side of the washout in order to get the fuel off to the aircraft uh, that were flying out. It was truly a the more I read about the Newfoundland Railway, the more interesting it is and the, the more uh, rich it is. It's uh, certainly, for having only 550 miles of track, it certainly is a, a fascinating railway. And it had its own 
diesel locomotives and it uh, styled to cross between a Jeep and an SW uh, locomotive. And uh, it had uh, some very nice steam engines and some beautiful passenger equipment, some made on the island uh, in their shops in Whitburn. Sorry, can you tell I know a little bit of the railway? <laughs> I, I, I'm interested in this. Chris, have you ever seen anybody that's modeled the Newfoundland Railways? Have you seen any layouts? Uh, well, besides myself and two other guys? No. <laughs> well, you're modeling the Newfoundland Railway. Okay. I, I, that was what, well, that was what got me into S scale in the first place was that it was a good combination. S scale bodies on HO track worked out perfectly for 42 inch gauge. Um, and, uh, I had built a, a couple of models and got sidetracked completely with the history itself. Um, so I've collected a number of the books that were published by former conductors on the line, former engineers on the line, uh, local historians. And, uh, it's, it's been a fascinating, I, I sort of left the modeling aside and just read about the history of it because it just seemed so implausible. And so, um, it had a romance to it that I wasn't, uh, wasn't used to associating with, uh, something purely mechanical, uh, like a transportation system. Um, but there is a fellow locally here, probably within a 45-minute drive, who has an extensive layout in his basement that's all based on the Newfoundland Railway in S-scale. And I didn't find out about him until after I decided to uh, to do what I was doing. And uh, we've gotten together a number of times and uh, chewed the fat and discussed things. He knows way more about it than I do. Uh, but he's been studying it for 20-odd years, so I wouldn't be surprised if he knows more than I do about it. But again, it's it's one of these little uh, off-to-the-side, narrow-gauge, uh, like virtually nobody knew about it uh, that I'd talked to, and it has a history just as fascinating as any of the big lines, like the to, to me the Santa Fe or the Penzi or anything like that. Uh, it's as interesting and as uh, engaging for different reasons, but still. And some of those, the, although they had no tunnels on the line, as you said, uh, Andrew, they they had the the, the loop that dropped the uh, the drop the elevation. Um, it had many many bridges and many many curves. I, I think more than fifty percent of the line was actually curved. And it was close to 60% of the line had a grade one way or the other. It wasn't uncommon to fit a set of brakes at Port of Basque and on a, on a car and have to replace those brakes uh, in St. John's because they'd been worn right through, uh, just, just going down hills. Um, and there was no uh, dynamic braking on the engines. They were straight, uh, straight uh, mechanical brakes. So. It, it, it's really a shame that there, I mean, that there's not because you think that post 9-11, because the Newfoundland people, you know, really rallied when all these planes landed in Newfoundland coming from Europe, and, they, you know, they put up, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, folks tra- traveling to the United States for, for quite some time. But tourism sort of taken off post that because the American people and, and all sorts of other people have had this renewed interest in Newfoundland. And, you know, what an incredible thing it was, would be if they could also travel on a portion of that on that historic railroad. But... Sadly, well, uh, it, there are a number of, of local uh, 
locales where you, you could find a, a use for a railway. Like there's railways that have been long since discontinued and, and torn up from just about any area you can think of that would make ideal tourist lines these days. Um, the Huntsville and Lake of Bays, which was a portage railway in northern Ontario, used to take people, it was only a couple of miles of track, but it used to take people from one ferry location to another ferry location on a different lake system, which would take them to these huge resorts uh, off built on the islands uh, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, magnificent uh, lodges and ballrooms and and, uh, dance halls and stuff. Um, And that is partially restored, but something like the Newfoundland Railway where you could go hunting and fishing in some of the best locations in, in North America, uh, certainly some of the most rugged locations in North America, uh, on a on a sleeper train or a diner train, you know, it's it's kind of the slow boat method of travel because a lot of the times it was restricted to uh, uh, 25 miles an hour uh, running speed over some of the areas when, when uh, maintenance wasn't as good as it could have been. But uh, if you were doing that kind of speed as part of the tourist uh, trade, then yes, it would be marvelous because you'd actually get to drink in the surroundings. You wouldn't be whipping through it at 100 miles an hour. And uh, they marvelous, uh, marvelous areas to go through uh, for uh, you know just unspoiled beauty wilderness, right? You could drop people off and have them go off on hiking tours or. Uh, Again, I mean, hunting and fishing within uh, within the bounds of uh, uh, proper management of, of the resources. But uh, it's a shame because really, uh, when it comes down to it, a lot of the closures of rail lines and, um, uh, and their associated uh, networks are because of uh, transport lobbying for the highways. Um, the transit of goods by truck is worth billions, billions of dollars a year, and any competition to that is is not good. And while it's true that railways cannot serve all local customers, you still have to come to a depot and unload and put it in something that can get it from that location to to the end customer. If you're going coast to coast or you're going halfway across Canada, what's that? 3,000 miles. If you're going 3,000 miles, it doesn't need to be in a truck. It can be in a, in a rail car and, and go across and be unloaded at a local spot and put into a maybe a, a, a straight bed five-ton truck instead of a, a big semi. I don't know. That's, there's a scope of operations there that's way outside of, of what uh, the average person can, can grasp in terms of the economies of scale of everything. But I'm sure there has to be a way to to uh, to take advantage of of the rail network, which is uh, good horsepower per pound ratio uh, versus trucks on uh, on constantly varying grades, uh, like our our highway system is constantly up and downhill, where the rails really try to avoid that. There has to be an economy there somewhere that fits into the whole eco green lower carbon footprint that we're looking for these days. I wish, I wish someone would do a, a real unbiased study on it that, that could, uh, that could bring, bring a better way to light, but you know, 
I, I remember Again. my uncle, uh, who, who, was, who run, uh, runs a small committee that's part of Transport 2000 called Railways of the Future. And his, his whole purpose is to get municipalities to preserve these rail right-of-ways, even when the tracks are ripped up, because they might need them someday. But one of the things he said with the GO train, which is the Toronto um, um, re- regional transit system, the, uh, the, uh, the GO train, a GO train requires a 50% subsidy, carries 2,000 people. A GO bus that carries 48 people makes money. And they're charging the same thing, and it's and he says it's because of the you know the taxation system, right? I mean, we we all of our tax dollars go into these highways, and so you know the trucks or the buses and all of us can can ride on them, you know, basically free, other than a few toll roads, and and the rails they got to build everything themselves, and I mean it doesn't make any sense. I mean that that that, that, that a train that can pull two thousand people the same distance requires requires this sort of subsidy, but he he says it's because of the taxation system and, and the expectation that the railways you know pay the whole show. Well that 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 sheds a little more light on the problem. I think yeah that's <laughs> uh that's probably correct. So before before we wrap up the show Andrew, while you were on the, the call previously, I had a look at Michelle's website with regards to his layout. Can you talk a little bit about Michelle's layout and um how he's acted as a mentor in your model rail development? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Michelle Boucher, he's uh, he's been in the hobby since the early 1980s, and I think this layout is his fourth layout. He models the Delaware and Hudson, which is uh, uh, I think its its tagline is the bridge line between Canada and the United States, and that's really what its creation was to to take traffic between the two countries. And um, he models a little branch line from Saratoga Springs uh, up to a place called Pahos that was uh, in Algonquin Park. They had special permits because they were mining. Um, Ilmenite, which was something uh, needed for for the for the war effort, but he he's he's a prototype modeler and I mean and just a fab a fabulous like builder and 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 painter and stuff too. So he's he's just a great guy to work work alongside. But he's really he takes the time. I mean I I'm I gotta bet I'm a slow learner learner in this hobby. I I uh, sometimes need to be shown something two or three times and just to to figure it out. And he's the sort of guy that will take the time to do that and uh, you know will challenge you. Um, you know, when when you're doing something to to, to do it better, and he and he takes the time. He's, you know, taking the time. He's always bringing new people in to operate his layout. At any given on a on a regular operating session, which is two Mondays a month, there's probably eight of us operating, and uh, there's forever new guys that he's bringing in. He's run into somewhere um, that that he that he brings in and starts them out on a on a small passenger train, and then you know the guys that have a little more experience get get some of the switching jobs and things. And, Certainly. Yeah, I mean, looking at the looking at the photographs on his site, he has a very clean style, and the aesthetic is is very much designed, I, I guess, for easy operations. And as you say, bringing in uh, beginners and, and nurturing them uh, in the hobby. In terms of your own layout, what what kind of impact has he had on your own layout? Well, yeah, I mean, the the, the whole idea of actually build building it to to operate and. Uh, and, and really quality track work and cleaning the track work and, and doing the sorts of things, you know, that, that, that are going to make it enjoyable. There's, I mean, there's uh, somebody, uh, Rob Peck, who's another mentor of mine, once said that, that, that turntables are the number one reason for getting people out of the hobby because you know, <laughs> they often they, they, they slap them together, they don't spend the time putting them in properly, and they're finicky little things, you know, to get them to... Um, to, to get them to work, and yeah, so Michelle, you know, wa- you know, challenged you to do something that that you can, you can build that can work that's manageable without sort of going going crazy on all the all the sort of, you know, 
the higher end stuff that you can get into that you can get into eventually. But uh, yeah, Certainly. I mean, and also um, the choosing the uh, DCC system of lens. I actually started out with the Digitrack system, and um, it ended up as my layout expanded. It was just their small little Zephyr system, so it wasn't going to work for for me anyway. But actually, having working on the same uh, DCC system as, as him has been really helpful because if I'm having a problem trying to program something, I can I can call him up, and he uh, he, he can help me out with that. In fact, that's what, what my recommendation to anybody getting into DCC is. You know, all all systems have their pros and cons, but you know, pick something that your friends are using so that you have somebody that kind of can guide you uh, guide you along the way. Andrew, it's been a pleasure talking with you uh, this evening. Unfortunately, my wife is uh, banging pots and pans in the background, which typically means that uh, it's about the right time to wrap up the show. Chris, it's it's been a pleasure as always. And uh, Ben in New Zealand, thank you very much for hanging out on the show. It's been fascinating looking at photos of uh, a a very curious model, well, a very curious actual railroad that you're going to be modelling, or railway probably to use the New Zealand vernacular, uh, which you're actually going to be modelling in the near future. And please don't be a stranger. I mean, uh, if you can get onto Skype and get a, a cheap rate to uh, to call in, it'd be wonderful to have you on uh, one of the future shows. Or if you have the means and ability, and this is the point I was going to make to folks listening in, if you can't actually make the shows but you want to give a, a selection of audio, I know um, Ben in New England was considering this as well because he's had various mic problems calling into the shows, please do record audio, uh, submit it to me, tom at modelrailradio.com, and I'll put them in the show. We'll work them into the show format. Uh, I'll send it to Chris so he can have a chance to have a listen, and we can have a discussion associated with the audio that folks want to send in. Similarly, if you go to a show or you want to you know, record something about your layout or anything like that, we're more than, more than happy to take audio clips from listeners uh, for folks listening in and uh, who, who don't have the opportunity to, to call in, as, as Andrew has done this evening. Chris, what's the next couple of weeks looking like in terms of your model railroading hobby? Well, I'm not going to commit to anything right now (laughs) because every time I do, somebody throws me a curveball. So I'm going to, uh, I've got a couple of weeks holidays coming up at the end of the month. um, And I'm not sure whether that's going to be devoted to dealing with uh, the, uh, the the new mound in the backyard, or it's going to be devoted to things indoors like uh, getting back into the shop and getting some projects underway. I think probably a little of both uh, as I've, I've earned the downtime. But uh, yes. uh, I've, I will continue to, to peruse my, my mountain of, of paperwork here and go through these old issues, which continue to fascinate <laughs> me. And... Um, um, hopefully, I'm hoping that by the time we get to talk again, my my uh, DCC uh, speedometer will be here so that I can Great. talk about that. And Andrew, what yeah. what are you anticipating doing in the next couple of weeks? Well, I'm uh, actually tonight. Before you asked me to call in, I was going to actually work on a model while I was listening. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> So yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to probably uh, do do a little bit of ballasting on the layout in one of the sections that I painted some track on that sort of and uh, I picked up a kind of a neat uh, freight car at the uh, Credit Valley sale before they moved that I want to 
want to sort of detail up. So those are my two projects for the next couple of weeks. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I still have the engine house to build. I still have the ballasting to do. Similar to uh, Chris's narrative, I've I've been nonstop on all fronts, but looking uh, looking at the layout currently with the hope that and this is this is Fourth uh, of July uh, holiday in the US, so maybe over the Fourth of July weekend I might have a chance to actually uh, do some work on the layout. I, my hope is actually to build the engine house first because that's a project that I've been looking forward to doing for a few weeks now. So for folks listening in, thank you very much for uh, for listening into a somewhat eclectic recording this evening. Uh, if you want to participate, like I say, go to modelrailradio.com, check out the call-in times, go onto the mailing list where you can chat with Andrew and Chris and other folks who have participated in the show previously. Chris and Andrew, thank you very much for, for chatting this evening and look forward to talking to you both soon. Good night. Good night. Good night. Always a pleasure. <laughs>